Good evening and welcome to My Therapist Says. I welcome you. I'm Dr. Don Welch. I'll be your moderator this evening and we are so glad that you're here tonight to work on some important relationship issues. You know the title is Best Relationship Communication Techniques. And this is like having a therapist actually in your living room because you're going to be able to ask the questions that you have related to the topic. So if you have a three by five card, if you would just hold that up in the air, make sure that you have one. Do you have one in your hand? Thank you. And if you would like to write a question just now, feel free to write it, hold it up in the air, and one of our hosts will come by, I'll select that, bring that up to me, and then I will be sharing those questions later in the evening. So thank you for being here tonight. You may have noticed as you were reading the bios and backgrounds of our illustrious panel members that we are holding this uh, live streaming. So if you have a friend or someone who is unable to physically be here at our first of the month, the first Wednesday, if you will, of the month, my therapist says they can listen to it only at the time that we are presenting from 6.45 to 8 p.m. So I certainly welcome you to invite others uh, to listen in. Uh, we are uh, videotaping. If you, if you at some point in the future would like to see these, we will have them audio taped as well and on our Skyline Church website for you to listen to it at your leisure. We're now into uh, our sixth year, I think going on seven seven years now uh, doing this. We have almost 80 presentations. So we have topics that uh, perhaps you may not even thought of relating to anxiety, uh, depression, eating disorders, all sorts of DSM, which means kind of diagnostic psychological issues that maybe you have a friend or loved one may be experiencing. We have we may well have spoken of it and talked about it. So I welcome you to uh, listen in on My Therapist Says. We're going to have a word of prayer and then I'll have just a brief introduction of our panel members and then our uh, present presenter today, and that is Kathy Getke, will be presenting about a 15 to minute 20 presentation, 20 minute presentation, and you do have a handout that will lead us through uh, the evening. So let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we do thank you this evening for your great, gracious love for each of us. You went to the cross and died a sinner's death. You, without sin, became sin on our behalf. You died a sinner's death to not only demonstrate, but provide us a way to experience your love everlasting and to have a way to the God of the universe, the only God of this universe. And so we thank you, Father, that as we meet here together this evening, that we are going to experience your grace. If our hearts are open and our minds are somewhat cleared, that we will hear from you. You've promised us where two or three are gathered together for your purpose, the miraculous always happens. We anticipate it this evening. Thank you for the privilege that this wonderful church, Skyline Church, that's provided the opportunity for us to meet now for these many years and provide professional therapists and physicians and others in the mental health field who are providing these wonderful discussions and also attempting to answer questions that may well be perplexing and cause us to even have greater anxiety. So thank you, Father, for your grace this evening. All truth comes from you, so when there is healing, it always comes from the gracious heart of the God of this universe who loves each of us as though I or each person in this auditorium or those who may be listening realize that he or she is the person you went to the cross to die for, providing a way that we can have abundant life 
and have it to the full. So we thank you. We bless you this night. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If I may just quickly introduce our panel members. Uh, to my left, Kathy Getke is, uh, has already been mentioned. She's going to be our presenter tonight. Um, and so we thank you for being here. Once again, Kathy Dennis Estelle has been with us and presented on a number of occasions. And Danielle Levy has been with us on several occasions as well. And then Dr. Marcial Fallon. Many of you have seen or heard him as well. This is a wonderful panel. I'm very, very proud to introduce each and every one to participate this evening. This should be a very lively discussion. Before Kathy begins, if you do have your three by five card filled out with a question, would you please raise it in the air and we'll pick those up just now. Anyone have a three by five card question that you've written out, just raise it in the air, we'll collect those. And then once Kathy has completed her presentation, we'll dive right into those topics, those questions, those issues that you have sincere interest in. So Kathy, welcome. Just a minute while I get situated. How's everybody doing tonight? Good? Are we ready to learn something about communication that maybe we don't already know? We're all perfect at it, right? We can go home. <laughs> okay, so a wife asks her husband, could you please go shopping for me and buy a carton of milk, and if they have eggs, get six? Short time later, the husband comes home and he's got six cartons of milk. And the wife says, why in the world did you buy six cartons of milk? And he said they had eggs. <laughs> Little bit of a miscommunication there, right? So that's a miscommunication. What happens when we communicate a little bit too specific? My sister works at her church at the food pantry. And she also has worked with kids um, for many years, um, helping, actually helping teen moms, and so she knows these kids. So there was this one little girl who was three months old when she first started seeing her, and here it is, she's like five years old now, and she also, her mother helps at the food pantry, and so Marianne was saying that she walked in to the restroom and the little girl was there washing her face. She was hot. She had, you know how little kids do that? They take a paper towel and she's washing her face and Mary goes into the stall and she comes back out. And she looks at her and she said, how are you, Maria? And she says, teacher, you're getting old. <laughs> and she said, oh, okay. So it was just that, oh my goodness, how kids just say it exactly the way they see it. She said she laughed and probably embarrassed her, but to the little girl, it was absolutely, you're getting old. Mary thought, oh dear. So there's a happy medium, right, in between of how we communicate and what the words we want to use and what we want to do. So what is communication? Communication is the process of conveying information between a sender and a receiver using various methods as written words, nonverbal cues, and spoken words. So there's actually a model of communication. I don't know if you know that. What happens is a sender gets an idea and they want to send a message. Okay, they're going to encode that message in a unique way, in a unique perspective. That's only to them. And that will have to do with knowledge, their culture, their values, what's happened to them in the past, um, attitudes. So they're going to take all of that together. They're going to take their message and they're going to deliver it to the receiver. Then the receiver's job is to decode that message, right? 
and they're going to do the exact same thing. They're going to decode it using the same unique, not the same, I'm sorry, different unique perspectives to them. Their values, their attitudes, their background, their culture, very different possibly. But they're going to decode that information, that message, and then they're going to send it back to the sender. And that's called feedback. And the reason why they're doing that is what? To find out if they got the message correctly. That's the idea of what it is. And there's so many things that can go wrong in that process. And so we want to help today maybe um, you'd have to find a new way if there's one of those areas that's not quite working so well. There's communication barriers. What, what would a communication barrier be? It might be um, uh, an attitude about the topic, especially if you're talking about politics or children. It might be language. There's a lot of different things that can block and interrupt that message. We need to be aware of all of that. Communication sounds really simple, but we really need to be aware of a lot of different things, what's going on. So what happens when feelings get in the way of communication? And just to give you an idea, we're gonna do, I'm gonna do a brief overview, and then I think we all have ideas for best techniques. And so I wanted to give more time to that. So I just wanna give you a brief overview of what really is communication, and what are we talking about here? So when feelings get in the way of communication, many couples get sidelined when they allow their emotions to get in the way of what they're trying to communicate. And I kind of call it when our expectations don't meet up with reality. We all know when that happens, right? And typically what happens is we end up angry. But if you look at it, there's usually underlying emotions somewhere in the mix of, of feeling hurt, maybe fearful or frustrated, that stop us and if we're able to identify what those emotions are, then rather than going straight to being angry, we're able to deal with that and deal with the true issue. So it's important to learn to identify what is the real emotion that's going on there. So an example of that would be maybe a husband doesn't come home from dinner on time, come, doesn't come home for dinner on time, and he doesn't call. And by the time he gets home, I mean, I don't know, it's happened to me before, it's happened to my husband before. But what happens? You're angry. But why am I really angry? Well, maybe I'm angry because I'm, I'm fearful that something happened to him and I didn't know what was going on. Maybe I was hurt because he's done this before and if he really loved me, he wouldn't have done it. Or maybe I'm just frustrated because I cooked a really great meal and I don't cook that much anymore and now it's ruined? So what's really going on there and what do I want to communicate to him? Because if I just get caught up in being angry, I'm not gonna be able to communicate. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what not to do? What not to do, this is taken straight from John Gottman's Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And that's exactly, it's, it's serious stuff here, but it's super important to re remember what not to do. So the first one is criticism. Stating, and these are, this is a quote from him, stating one's complaints as a defect in one's partner's personality. How many times have we felt that? Now, maybe it's from a spouse, but maybe it's from a friend. This is, a lot of this here I'm talking about couples, but we can use it with children, with friends, family members. Um, usually the intent of making some, someone right 
and someone wrong. That's what happens when we criticize. And this comes across as attacking, assumes that they've done something wrong, and then blames them for it. Nobody likes that, right? But we know when it happens to us. So at general, we use generalizations typically. You always, you don't care, you're the type of person who da 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 da. And it's you and we are making sure that they know that they've done something wrong and we're right. Defensiveness. Okay, defensiveness is a self-protection in the form of righteous indignation or innocent victimhood. So when someone's being defensive, there's a whole lot of other things going on here. And using those you statements, that can cause, actually it's, it's a very quick and easy way for someone to get defensive really, really fast. So when someone is defensive, it usually comes from a feeling of having been injured by criticism or contempt. They refuse to take responsibility for their actions and will keep the couple from dealing with the real issue. So think about that for a minute because a lot of times we don't realize we're getting defensive when that's really what it is. Sometimes that looks like um, making excuses. Well, it's not my fault. It's not my fault that I, I wasn't home on time. Um, it might be cross-complaining. So, well, I, maybe I wasn't home on time, but you don't usually make dinner, so it doesn't really matter. I didn't know you were gonna plan on dinner. See how you get sidetracked from what the real issue is? Okay. And then sometimes it comes across as just plain whining. It's not fair. None of us like a whiner, right? Okay, contempt. These are all things what not to do. Statements that come from a relative position of superiority. Contempt is the greatest predictor of divorce and must be eliminated. That's by John Gottman's. And he has done many studies on what keeps people together, what keeps marriages together, what um, is a predictor of divorce, and this is one of the things that he says is the greatest predictor. So it's attacking, attacking your partner's sense of self. It's an intent to psychologically abuse them. If we don't know that in our own relationship, hopefully not, sometimes we've seen it in other ones, and that's what it is. It's disrespecting it's intentionally insulting, name-calling, making derogatory statements or facial expressions, hostile humor, sarcasm or mockery. That's contempt. There's no place for it in our marriage. And stonewalling is the last of the four. Emotional withdrawal from interaction. And this is the one that kind of seems like it's the most um, benign, I guess, but really, if you're in that relationship with somebody who stonewalls, there's no way you can make progress because they're not willing to even engage in the discussion. And so it conveys disapproval. It's refusing to communicate about the issue. Now I wanna make it clear this is very different than taking a time out and that's you know fighting fair. One of the things is sometimes if you're very angry and hostile, you need to take a time out. This is different from that. This is saying, I will not engage whatsoever in even the conversation. So it might be a stony silence. It might look like um, giving a silent treatment. And it might even just walking out the door every time there's conflict. OK, let's move on to best techniques. So the best techniques are practice 
active listening. These are just a few, and I'm sure that uh, my colleagues here will have other ones. We'll talk a little bit about these, and then in the discussion be able to talk some more. So practice, act, practice active listening, giving your partner your full attention, being assertive, I will explain that one, be aware of nonverbal communication, thoughtfully choose your words, and practice. Okay, practice active listening. This, I believe, is one of the key things in communication. Sometimes we think we're listening, but we're really not listening. And so how is it that you know that that model is taking place? Remember, I've got a message, I'm sending it, they're decoding it, they're sending it back with feedback so that they can make sure that they're understanding. The a communication is really about, I think it was in one of the other slides, communication is about understanding. It's not about being understood, okay? We wanna know that we're understanding what's being said, what's being communicated. So active listening is the ability to let your partner know you understand them by relating or restating their message. So you're gonna paraphrase that back. You might need to ask some good questions to clarify, and then you're gonna empathize with them so that they know you're on the, the same emotional page with them. And what that might look like, um, I actually had some clients in and she was really frustrated and hurt because she had brought something up and her husband just got angry. I mean, he just got angry, started yelling at her, and felt like he had every right to do that. And what she really wanted to hear, she said, I'm hurt. Well, you da 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 da. And he was really justifying and being defensive why he was angry. And so when I made him go through this process, it's amazing what happens. I'm hurt, what, what you do is she says what she wants. I'm hurt when you get defensive and don't hear what I'm saying. It makes me feel like you don't care. I need to feel loved by you. So then he takes that message and he has to paraphrase it back. It took him five times to get it. And that's what we do. We just keep going back through it. Is that what she, he said? He would say what he thought. She'd say, no, that's not what I said. What did you say? And she'd say it again. And by the fifth time, he moved up really close to her and he took her hand. And he said, you need to feel loved by me and I hurt you. She started to cry, he got teary-eyed, but it took that. They came in so angry, and it's because there was just a miscommunication of what was, trying, what was going on there. For them to be able to say, oh, I get it. This is what you need. Now I'm hearing you. Did you feel heard? She said, yes, I felt heard. This is what I needed. Okay. Second one, give your partner your full attention. Focus on what your partner is trying to communicate to you. So the first thing here is to get their attention. I used to walk in a room and my husband would be doing his quiet time or reading the paper or doing whatever and I would start talking. And I'd say, okay, and he'd be, what? And I'd go, you weren't even listening to me. And he said, I didn't know I was supposed to be listening to you because <laughs> I walked in and just started off. Well, that's not fair. So go in, Mike, do you have a minute to talk? Okay, now that I've got his attention and he has learned 
to put his iPad away or to put his computer away, close it, do whatever, turn the TV off if needs to. Now I've got your attention. And if not, you know what, babe, can you wait 10 minutes? I need to get through this. But make sure you don't start until you've got that full attention. Okay. Turn off the television, cell phone, Facebook, whatever it is. Make eye contact. Sometimes that's difficult to do, especially if you're really angry, but it's helpful if you can. And the third one is, if appropriate, hold hands and sit close. That sounds really corny to a lot of people, but just like that example I gave you, now I didn't have to tell them to do that, they just naturally did it because it was his way, non-verbally, of communicating, I get you. I get it. Okay, oh, you need to feel loved and you were hurt. I didn't mean to do that. I'm sorry. He kind of forgot about how angry he was. Okay, the next one. Is be assertive. Respectfully. I know some of you look at that and go, oh, be assertive. She's already assertive enough. Or he's already <laughs> assertive enough. This is really talking about for that person that wants to convey something or has certain expectations of what should happen, but they don't ever tell anybody. It could be in a, in a marriage. It could be a, a parent with a child. Well, I expected you to get your chores done. Well, how could you expect that? You never told me. What are your expectations? And sit down and talk about them. But they will never know if you don't tell them, right? My husband used to say, I'm not a mind reader. And I would think, oh, but if you really cared, you would just know. And he goes, eh, God didn't make me that way. And it took me a while to figure that out because I wasn't wired that way. I wanted him to just know, and I thought he should know. Well, I learned, no, I need to just tell him what I expect. And he is more than happy, 99.99999% of the time, to help that meet that expectation. Share your thoughts, feelings, and needs. Men are not mind readers. I know that feels a little sexist to say that, but I think it's typically women that do that more than men. I could be wrong. Okay. Be aware of nonverbal communications. This is the way of transmitting your message. When we talked about that model, this is the way you transmit that message. So how is that person standing? Are they making eye contact? It's funny, we like to walk uh, Torrey Pines, and my sister and I were hiking Torrey Pines the other day, and I was just kind of paying attention. You know when you're gonna do a little presentation, you start to notice things a little bit more? And it was really interesting what I was watching, but one of the things that kept coming up that cracked me up, now obviously you can't, you know, be looking at each other when you're hiking, but most of the time, the men were walking straight down like this, and the women were just yak, 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 yak. And I thought it was really interesting. I thought, I wonder how much of that those men are gonna really remember, because they're just going on. Now, maybe it was great, because I know I do the same thing, but it, it is interesting. Eye contact helps make that connection. Gesture with your hands and arms. I'm Italian. I naturally, if, if I didn't have this other mic, they'd, they'd both be going. It's just what happens. Doesn't mean I'm angry when I'm talking. I'm passionate when I talk. And I typically use my hands. Speech, is it slow? Is it rapid? What's going on? Is it a monotone? Where are they at? 
And you can tell a lot by a lot of these different nonverbal communications. And then their tone of voice. I had a couple in my office and she, um, she, bless her heart, she was there because he says she criticizes her and she just doesn't see it. She doesn't understand. And she really, really wants to stop. And he said, you know, I think more than anything, it's your tone of voice. It's the way you say things to me. Not necessarily what you say, but the way you say them is so demeaning and it puts me on the defense so fast. Check, check these things because they're just as important as the words we use. Thoughtfully choose your words. When voicing your feelings, your statements should be constructive and non-threatening. Using I statements will help to express how you feel about your partner's behavior without causing them to become defensive. I feel dot, dot, dot. I think dot, dot, dot. I would appreciate it if you would whatever it is. That's what you're, you're, you're helping them to better understand what your needs are, what you're thinking. Avoid using you statements. This is a fast way to cause your partner to shut down, generate defensiveness, right? And create hostility. You always, you never, and you didn't. I don't care who you are, nobody likes to hear those. And then lastly, practice, practice, practice. Be intentional. I know it sounds silly, but it's just like exercising. It's like playing an instrument. You have to practice to get better at it. We were not naturally born to do all of these things to help us to be the best communicators we can be. It's easy to say, oh, I just wasn't born that way, or oh, that's not the way we did it in my family. This is what I need to do to be the best communicator with you, with my children, with friends. I mean, people come in and they're, you know, I don't have any friends. And after a while, it's like, oh, I can kind of understand why. You're kind of demeaning and derogatory and, you know, you have to help them. So that's what we need to do is look at ourselves and say, where can I practice this? Be intentional. Engage in daily dialogue about your relationship. Not just when, not just what happened during the day. So that's good too. That's a good place to start. But go deeper than that. What do you like about our relationship? What could I have done better when I did that? When we got in that argument, what would you have liked to have heard from me instead of the way I responded? Getting at a deeper level. But it's important to be able to practice it. Another thing I like to have clients do is to create an appreciation journal. And that gets us in the habit of appreciating our spouse, maybe our kids, and, I mean, there's lots of ways to do it. You can keep one journal, and you both just kind of go back and forth and write things in there. I heard of um, one couple that used to keep a piece of paper inside of both of their um, medicine cabinets, and every day they'd just write something in there. And it was kind of fun, because in the morning, they'd get to go and look, and, oh, they appreciate this. And sometimes, quite frankly, it might be just that they brushed their teeth that day. I mean, sometimes that's where we're starting, right? But maybe it'll be that you made the bed, or you mowed the lawn, or you washed the car, or you washed the clothes, or that you went to work. Start where you're at. There's something you can find to be thankful about your spouse.
Strong marriages are built on a, form, on a firm foundation of effective communication, empathy, and understanding. Thank you for listening. Okay. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, outstanding. Most of us are in careers where we go to conferences and the presenter begins telling us things that we already know and yet we're invited to take what we already know and make practical application and then they add additional information to it which I think you've done so well this evening. These are all skills that are incredibly important not just in a relationship but being successful in the work world or successful with our children or grandchildren. So. Thank you very much. Very, very well done. And I thank you for that. Our first question, let's dive into the questions. And if you have a three by five card and you have a question, would you please write your question on that three by five, write, raise it in the air, and that will be brought to me. Here's our first question. And it really relates to what you were referring to in uh, relationships between couples. The question states, it's more of a statement actually, and then it asks, what can I do at the very end? I understand that my wife wishes I had the strengths of her dad and that she's disappointed that I'm strong in other areas and not the one she values. I too realize maybe I too wish my wife possessed the strengths of my mom, but she has other strengths that I don't value, I guess. What can we do? That sounds like uh, something in the newspaper uh, that being asked here. It's a very well articulated. Almost all of us are laughing up here. It's just so true, isn't it? We see that so often. So here it is. I understand what, that my wife wishes I had the strengths of her dad, and of course she's disappointed, and then I, the opposite, wish my wife possessed the strengths of my mom, but uh, apparently that's not the case. So what can we do? How would you respond to that? How would our panel respond to that? You know what Mother Teresa said just in response, I was thinking when you were talking, I came to my mind and I wrote it down, and Mother Teresa said, if you judge them, you can't love them. And so in a way, way to first start with this communication may be to realize that when we begin to judge what we don't like, and that's going to preempt the ability to maybe love the person. So I really like what uh, she said about that if you judge them, you can't, you can't love them. Uh, very powerfully said. But how would you respond to this, this particular dilemma that apparently this couple finds themselves? I think the problem comes from us idealizing a certain person like we would of our, our father or our mother and then asking someone else to live up to that ideal. And chances are, if we were to go to the source, the a father, the mother, and say, this is the way you really are, they would say, well, no. You know, we, but we idealize other people's marriages sometimes. And we say, boy, I wished I had that marriage. And uh, certainly there are things that we would like to see happen, uh, maybe that, that to share with them in their marriage. But uh, when we ask someone to live up to an ideal, it really is not fair to them. And it's always going to lead to our disappointment. And I don't know about you, but there's nothing worse than living with a disappointed person. You know, they're, you know they've, they've just settled for me. And that never is going to make for a healthy relationship. So I think I, like, I love the idea of the appreciation journal. And, and that forces you, if you will, to begin to appreciate the things that are there. 
And whenever we begin to do that and do less of the things that aren't there, uh, we're going to have a happier marriage. And I think uh, more appreciation and with that, better communication is going to come. Uh, it's not going to start from that, you're disappointed with me uh, perspective. And uh, I think learning to appreciate and to express that uh, is going to make for a much better marriage. Mm -hmm. Why do we tend to idolize? You said that that's so true of us as human beings. Why is it in human nature that we might, uh, this ideal of what we believe should be, and then it could be that our mate or a friend or a loved one or a teacher, or, I mean, all sorts of variances of relationships, but why do we tend to do that? Why do we idolize? What causes us to do that? You really brought that out for us to look at. What would you say? You know, come to me that uh, the grass is always greener on the other side, and mm. we don't realize that it's artificial turf is what it is. <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, we're, we are always doing that. We're doing that with our jobs. Uh, uh, you know, we do that with our financial position. Um, and maybe it's human nature. I don't know. Maybe it's a lack of, of uh, a real appreciation. You know, remember when I was a kid, we, we used to sing a song in church. It, it, was, it was called, Count Your Blessings. Count Your Many Blessings. And I, I always thought as a kid growing up, what are, they, what are they talking about? And then as I got older, I realized that if I would take time to really count my blessings and to see what God has given to me, uh, it really it helps to bring balance into my life. And maybe the grass won't appear so green around the other side. That's such a great song. Name them one by one. That's what counts your blessings. If you can somehow name them and remind yourself of them. Yes, Marcel. Uh, I think uh, when idealizing, I think our culture has done a great job, especially through the media, of creating fairy tales. Hmm. You know, the notebook, uh, uh, Princess Bride, or what have you, whatever. You've seen all those, huh? Yeah, I've those seen okay them all. Part. I love them. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, but we've, we've created a, a mentality, and, and so that the, it's called, I call it the happily ever after mentality. Mm -hmm. And we never see what happens when they ride off into the, after they ride off into the sunset. You know, the only one that does that is Shrek. Shrek and Friona. Okay. They're real. They fight and they, you know, the ogres, if those of you who don't have grandkids or kids, you know, they're real. That's about the only fairy tale that shows some of the warts of what happens after the honeymoon. And so there's this ideal thing. And I heard someone say once that we, we, get, we get married and we have a choice. We, we uh, have this ideal picture of the ideal mate and we can hold that picture up over the head of our mate and um, compare our mate to it. And then if, we, if they don't meet up to that, we can tear up our mate and keep the picture. Mm. Or we can choose to tear up the picture and accept our mate. Mm. See? And that's what it's so is. What are we focusing on? Are we focusing on what we don't have, what our mate qualities that they lack, or are we focusing on the, the, mate, the, the qualities that our mates do have? And a lot of that comes back to contentment, like Dennis said about you know, the grass, artificial turf. That was cool, Dennis. Going to remember that one. That'll preach. <laughs> but, but remembering that, those realities to accept and perspective and being content with and thankful 
like we said, with appreciation for the gifts that our spouse does, their strengths, their gifts, their abilities, instead of focusing on what they don't have, and then accepting the, you know, the expectations and the realities of their limitations, and what do we focus on? So I wonder if you're talking now, and I was teasing Dr. Fallon because I know he has many grandchildren, and so he knows all of these wonderful movies that we were referring to, you were referring to. I wonder if what you're talking about is the idea of contempt. When we look back at Dr. John Gottman, that's on your second page of the handout. Is that sort of statements that come from a relative position of superiority? Oftentimes, if I have to feel superior, I feel inferior, typically. I mean, Christ did not place himself in a superior position. He placed himself in a one-down, complete one-down position. So health, of course, is the life of Christ and Christ living within us through the Holy Spirit. So I'm wondering if my question of that is, and you're beginning to answer it, if it has to do with, uh, Kathy, you said attacking a partner's sense of self. That was not on the handout. If you listen to what she said on page two, with the idea of contempt, you said attacking the partner's sense of self. So if I have a low self, would I then be tempted to attack my mate or say someone else that we may feel like we're in competition with? What do you think about that? Does it drive it right back to these, these four statements from Dr. John Gottman, 1984, you have listed? Um, so kind of tying that piece in with, with a question that the audience member asked. Um, I think a lot of times when we're not getting our needs met, we tend to go into contempt or criticism. I think it's kind of this um, really primal kind of core way of saying, hear me, I need you to hear me. Mm. And so we kind of get pushed to these points of saying these things that we really don't mean just to get a reaction. And um, I think especially um, when you hear a couple come in and say, you know, I wish they were more like my mom or my dad, which is really common. Again, to me, it's kind of normally a very core need isn't being met. Mm -hmm. So it's not even about actually being more like the mother or the father that you grew up with in terms of behaviors. It's more like, I need you to hear me. I need to know that you are sad for me, that you understand what I'm going through. So again, it's more kind of a wake-up call of, um, I need you to feel safe. Because oftentimes we grow up and we either idealize our childhood or we kind of demonize it, right? Mm -hmm. So either we had the most amazing parents or one of them was pretty awful. Um, in this case, if there's a parent that's amazing, we feel that way because they made us feel safe and special mm -hmm. and unique. And that's what we want in our partner, is someone to make us feel safe and safe when we feel vulnerable. So I think um, in that case, it's not so much you're a disappointment, you're not like my father. There's something more like, I need you to hear me. I'm in a lot of pain. I need to know that you're on my team. Um, so that's kind of, for me, it's more a core issue, it, not so much the behavior. If so that makes any sense. Yeah, the core is she's feeling safe. I'm special. I'm listened to. So I'm I, cared for. I'm cared for. And maybe that's why you suggested earlier, Kathy, that oftentimes you see, at least I do in therapy, I see women who will say, if my husband would just give me more eye contact and if he would say it in a more gentle way. And the male says, what? No, I mean, he responds, you know, trying to figure that out, is that we don't tend to, males to males don't tend to soften, lean forward, give a lot of eye contact 
although I'm doing it with the men on the platform here, we try to say that we can do it. Yeah, we're doing very well, aren't we? We should pat ourselves on the back. Um, so how you say it, that would cause a sense of feeling understood. Now I want to invert this if I may. There are many men, I'm one, that I really appreciate it with my wife, leans forward, listens to me, and in a soft, gentle way, really works to understand. I don't know if it was Stephen Covey, who was it that said, uh, to be understood is to understand. Stephen. Stephen Covey, isn't it? Yes. To be understood is to understand. That's why we build empathy into little children who create, that creates a healthier life. Because they develop intuition, they understand things better, they actually will be more successful in the business world, if you will, because they will have a level of intuition. Even a little male who grows up to be a big man will have intuition, which is one of the features that most CEOs are actually touted as having if they reach that level. So it's a sense of not necessarily behavior, but you're saying to be understood, that I'm valued, I'm validated, is that what you're saying? So this question, why we perhaps, I was asking, we go back to uh, maybe devaluing, it may be that we're, our needs are not being met, is that what you're, and when you said core needs, could you all describe what that means a little more? You, you, you described it, I think, very well, in a way, if we can divide it in, define it in a more broader sense. What is a core need? We, we talked about being understood, being valued. What are some other core needs that we as humans have that we would expect in a healthy relationship? Um, acceptance, um, being safe. And one of the, I think one of the challenges for men is that we think we don't know how to do those things. Uh, or we think that our wife doesn't need those things anymore. Mm. And one of the questions I will ask a man is, when I have a couple in there, I say, do, you have, do you have a daughter? And if he says yes, I say, when your daughter falls and scrapes her knee, what do you do? And, he lo and they always look at me like, I go over to her, I pick her up, pat her on the back, I tell her it's gonna be all right. I wash off the knee, I may even kiss it to make it all better, comfort her. And I says, so you know how to do these core things. And to be able to translate that now into the relationship with your wife, not that she's a little girl, but to realize that we still have, all of us, men and women, have those core needs that need to be met. And I believe God has given us a spouse to, uh, to do that. I think an important thing here is that we find out what that core need is. Because it's not the same for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, it, and, and so it's important to know what is that core need that maybe isn't being met. Maybe, um, maybe the spouse has been out of work for a long time and that core need is to feel um, safe uh, as far as that, I mean, women like to, to feel safe. They like to know that they've got their home and... and um, kind of the nesting. Thank the you, of yeah. So, so that they're being taken care of. Not everybody, definitely not all women. But that might be a core need for somebody. And so that might be what's driving and maybe that husband's very empathetic and um, uses very loving words, 
but he hasn't been able to work for one reason or another. And that core need for her is to be cared for. And so she's a little bit fearful. So again, she's, what's, what's that emotion? What's underneath of it? And I just think, you know, we're talking about communication. Find out what that core need is. Mm -hmm. Maybe ask them, what, what is it that you're feeling like you're not getting from me that your dad, that you feel like your dad um, it has? Which, to be there in a relationship, you need to know the other person's not going to judge you if Absolutely. you share that feeling. So that goes back to Absolutely. that validation. You know, you know, if you've judged them, right. you can't love them. And if we're not loved, we're not validated. And if we're not validated, I'm certainly not going to, to place myself in a vulnerable place. So through the seasons of life, it seems like things can change. So, for example, I lose my job. Uh, I would hope that my wife Robin would, uh, I hope that would never happen, but uh, that well, you all would be without a job. No, I'm just kidding, but it's not <laughs> no, Marcia. You're not. But, yeah, no, okay, but, but the fact is that you would, um, at that point, um, I would hope she would say, well, what is it that you need? Because it might be, I just need a statement that says, you're my hero still. Oh, okay. I feel better, or whatever it might be. I'm not sure that's what I would say, but anyway, um, that I'm the only one that can voice it, and I think that's what you were, I believe you were suggesting. Because I think if we start to guess what it is, mm -hmm. we have so many chances of being wrong. Okay, can you help it with the women? Because you said that, that you, with your husband, Mike, you at one point said, I just, I really want you to kind of read my, you didn't say that, read my mind. Read my mind, yeah. Did you? Okay. I did. Why do women do that? Why do women... I didn't say I wanted him to, I just thought he should. Ooh, okay, that hurts. I okay, just so... assumed All right. that he would get it. So why do women do that? I'm asking it the second time. Um, well, I don't know why all women do it, but I think the reason why I did it was because I just thought he should know what my needs were. He should know him. He's my husband. I hadn't maybe said what they were, but I just thought he should know, or he should be able to figure out what's going on. You know how sometimes in, in our body language we can, um, we can do that silent thing, you know, and, and we're, we're just, what's wrong? Nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing. And when a guy says nothing, it typically is nothing. I mean, I really think mm -hmm. that that's true. Mm -hmm. So that's not you know, stonewalling nothing. at that yeah. point. We no. just don't know. They really just, you know, nothing's wrong. But <laughs> when women sometimes, nothing, no, nothing's wrong. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's right. You know there's something wrong. If that's Nothing's wrong, something's wrong. Okay, but the yes, thing sir. is, is I would, early in our marriage, I would think he should know what's wrong. He was living in the house. He saw what was going on. Why doesn't he know what's wrong? He really doesn't know what's going on. Or he knows what's going on, but he might not know what's wrong. And so I say nothing. How can I possibly expect him mm -hmm. to engage in a conversation of what's happening when I don't even really let him in on what I'm upset about? I can't. It's not fair. Mm -hmm. Fair. But you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah, you've, you've explained a blockage that oftentimes happens with men and women early on in their marriage where one expects the other one to know and then they begin to shut down because the other one's not recognizing and they don't know how to assert themselves to ask. By the way, I wasn't saying every woman does this, by the way, because you corrected me in a very gentle way. Not all women, but I might. I liked how you said that. So, but this, this issue of somehow asserting. 
I, I know that, Dennis, you were going to say something a couple well, times ago. we've been talking, myself. I know uh, from a, ma a female perspective, it, it seems pretty straightforward and there's just ask her and she will tell you and it makes a lot of sense and unfortunately us guys sometimes we don't even think about asking but if you ask a guy and I, I, I think that for most guys they would say I don't know I'm just angry uh, I just don't feel feel good I just want to be left alone and when I with men that I work with you almost have to give them the language to use so like for instance if a man has been out of work for quite a while he'll say I'm just mad because I'm just angry about and what's really going on and a lot of times he'll say I just feel powerless when you get him vulnerable I feel powerless I feel like I'm less than a man I can't provide for my family. I don't feel like my wife respects me anymore. And that's when you know that you're really getting to the core issues. But for men, we really, we have to actually stop and think about it. And sometimes even someone to give us the language to describe what we're feeling. Mm -hmm. So be patient with us. Oh yes, be patient with us. <laughs> <laughs> Marcel, were you going to? Well, you had asked about needs, and I think we've hit on a lot of them in terms of we've heard of the words safety, security, huge for women. Mm -hmm. For men, significance. Mm -hmm. uh, significance is huge. Emerson Egerich's love and respect. Women need, uh, men need uh, respect from women. Women need love from men and how mm -hmm. to do that. And you crack the communication code. He talks about that a lot. And then Willard Harley in his book, His Needs, Her Needs, says that a woman needs, you know, five basic needs in terms of in marriage. Uh, she needs affection. She needs communication. She needs openness and honesty. She needs financial commitment, safety, security. She needs, a f a f she needs family commitment. Maybe I repeated that. For a man, Harley says that he needs, number one, sexual fulfillment. Now, this may not be your order. Everybody's order is different, but he says men need sexual fulfillment, uh, recreational companionship, attractive spouse, uh, domestic support, and then admiration, which relates to respect. But all those, those kind of, in a nutshell, kind of things. And you can trace a lot of them back to those core needs of significance and mm -hmm. safety. Safety for a woman is communicated by closeness, by love, by financial commitment, by family support, by communication, all these things. It's amazing how those things, safety, security, significance for men, respect. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Those are the opposite of contempt. And of course, contempt is what we've been talking about just briefly here. And this next question leads right into that, to the heart of it. What if there's a lot of contempt in the marriage and we've been married a long time? I know it's not healthy. She said it's the biggest predictor of divorce. I think the person was referring to what you were saying, Kathy. So what if, what if there is a lot of contempt in the marriage and we have been married a long time? How does a person get around that, work through it, uh, heal it? provide some sense of uh, fulfillment in the midst of that, and what would you say? I think Danielle needs to answer that question. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Okay. My first response is, um, which may sound counterintuitive, is I actually think it's a better sign than um, a couple that stopped talking to each other. Yes. To me, if you're fighting, there's still passion, and mm -hmm. there's still something worth fighting for. Um, the person still has the power to hurt you, to make you happy, 
I think it's a good sign. Mm -hmm. um, my high conflict couples tend to do the best in the long term. So I actually, I feel like there's energy in the room. So I think it's good. Um, and again, it goes back to core needs. We, we raise our voice, we pursue our partner, um, we take it up a notch into contempt, um, which is kind of the ultimate. It goes past criticism and really into you as a person. Mm -hmm. um, when, again, our partner isn't hearing us, we're not getting what we want, it's kind of like a protest mm -hmm. um, or a cry. So again, on the outside you see um, maybe past events that have hurt you or you know that contempt back and forth, but very much below the surface right there is going to be, I'm scared to be vulnerable with you. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like I, I'm losing you. I'm still here, can you hear me? Why doesn't she respect me? Why doesn't she, why am I not good enough? Mm -hmm. um, so again, the, even when you get to couples that are um, more escalated or using contempt, they're so hurt. That's just the only way that they know how to communicate. Mm -hmm. um, it's much easier at that point to get over the actual events that have happened um, than one would think. It's really, as soon as someone feels safe in their relationship and heard, there's so much hope. Mm -hmm. um, and suddenly those events in the past don't really mean very much. Mm -hmm. They kind of lose the significance and the resentment. Um, because losing the resentment is, is, is kind of a gift. It's like, you finally get me. Okay, I don't have to hold this over you anymore. I can let it go. Mm -hmm. um, I trust you that it won't happen again. Um, so again, I don't think it's necessarily a bad sign. I just think it's really um, an indicator that it's time to, to talk to someone, to bring a third party in and, um, and get some help for it. But in itself, I think it's, it's not that bad. Yeah, because I, when we're talking about, thank you, uh, we put, we're, actually Dr. Fallon put you right on the spot there and you did exceptionally well. That's so right on from my perspective. So when we think of contempt, Dr. John Gottman would say, well, his favorite is the idea of stonewalling, where it, when he means favorite in a cynical way, because stonewalling is going silent. When we have some level of contempt, we have something to work with because there's emotion being shared. However, when we look at this idea of, of contempt, it's more of an indirect messaging. Notice what was being said in Kathy's presentation when she said contempt statements that come from a relative position of superiority. Contempt is the greatest predictor of divorce and must be eliminated. But superiority is like an indirect message and that's a killer of any relationship. Direct messages, you know, I'm, I'm thirsty like when uh, Jesus was very direct in many, many, on many occasions where he even said, I thirst. Or he made a comment about a person very direct in a very gentle and caring way. So contempt goes to an indirect messaging. So I'm not really saying my core feeling. Does that make sense? Which is what you were suggesting earlier. Um, so it can be powerfully damaging. So one way to work out of that is to be more direct. When this happens, I feel a little scared or afraid. Or when we're at the beach, I feel really elated and peaceful. Thank you. That's very direct instead of being indirect. And a lot of times, little children, you mentioned that that was really a wonderful joke. I mean, it was a sense about the teacher and the little, little child. She was being direct, but give her some years and she'll go to indirect messaging. 
which goes to a very unhealthy place. Because you were trying to say that was very healthy. She, even, she wasn't trying to demean the teacher. Right. She was being direct. And little children are healthy enough initially to be direct. So if I can move to another, another question that was asked, um, and do you want to add to that or no? Yes. Is that the question moves to this idea of maybe not just contempt, but how does entitlement affect a relationship? And it really ties into this, that I feel entitled. For example, I might feel entitled for my mate uh, to do something. I, I feel like you should be making the, the lunches and not me. I feel entitled that I shouldn't do that. Or I'm thankful Robin makes the lunches. But anyway, you know, these kinds of things that we might feel entitled to. How does entitlement affect a relationship? Please uh, be specific um, like about entitlement and then narcissistic issues within a person. How would you respond to that? This idea of entitlement. And it's right at the heart of communication. Entitlement almost sounds to me like uh, expectation. Very mm -hmm. similar in my thinking. Mm -hmm. um, like, I deserve this, you, or you owe me, mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, that's what comes to mind when I hear that. And, and you know, that, one of the, one of the, criticisms of our society I hear so often among people is the gosh how much we resent it when we encounter people who feel like they we owe them mm -hmm. this entitlement mentality it's so um, it, it really just kind of strikes us like wait a minute where do you get off coming where's that come from mm -hmm. you know and it comes from a lot of places it comes from those expectations primarily it comes from you know society or, or families of origin the way mom treated dad you know we come in and we think we kind of like hold this over each other's heads mm -hmm. and that and so uh, I deserve this, you know. And there are certain things that we, you know, we do, we, you know, safety, security, significance. Those are things that we mm -hmm. hopefully are giving to each other in marriage. But I think there's nothing more odious, if you will, than that attitude of, you know, you owe me. Entitlement is always like saying, you owe me. And, and boy, that's not, I don't think that's Christ-like in any way whatsoever. You know, Jesus, who emptied himself for us, he didn't hold on to anything mm -hmm. when he could have, you know. He gave it all so that we could have, you know, he paid a debt he did not owe, you know, mm -hmm. for us. Let me take the other side of this because I think you said it so well, Marcel, that um, Dr. John Gottman, since we're using that as the centerpiece, he says this for that will kill a relationship. So I do this, so I expect you to do that. Isn't that what we do in marriage, though, since we're talking about marriage right now? That, you know, say you expect someone to do this and just suppose I never wash the vehicles and, and I decided, we decided as a couple I'd wash the vehicles, so for a month I just don't. And maybe my my wife would. That's an ex, wouldn't that be a natural expectation that I'm I'm kind of expecting or maybe entitled to the fact that you'll follow through if I follow through that this for that, which is a very tenuous place to be. It's interesting that you use that example because we actually talked about that with a couple today in in session, and um, I think the the important thing to think about there is is you may set that up as, you know, I'll wash the cars and you clean the bathrooms. Mm -hmm. I mean, whatever it is. But understanding that it may not happen. And so what, what will you do rather than look at that person and think you have disappointed me because you have not washed the car? 
Um, maybe it's time to renegotiate. Maybe it's time to go back and say, you know, may, I'm not really sure why, you know, or what I can do. Um, we made this agreement that you were going to wash the cars, and I'm kind of feeling like um, you're not sticking, you know, you're not mm -hmm. keeping your, your end of the deal. Do we need to renegotiate that? What can we do um, to kind of move through that issue? It's it's interesting because we tend to say this is what this is the deal we made, and that's just the way it is. And I don't think it needs to be that way forever. How about the male who came into my office? This was many many years ago, and she finally we finally realized she just needed him to say he loved her, and he actually looked at her and said, 20 years ago, I said, I loved you. Why would I say that again? Mm -hmm. It would demean the fact that I love you. Mm -hmm. And he said, I told you that a long time ago, and I settled it. Mm -hmm. So what happens from some perspective that someone likes it the way it is, and we, did, we agreed on it, so I'm not willing to change or grow? Yeah. Well, I think, again, it comes back to expectations mm -hmm. and, and what is our expectation. And, and in an instance like that, if he is not willing to grow, if he's not willing to see that she needs mm -hmm. to hear that word, those words or she needs to feel that love um, on a somewhat regular basis, not every 20 years, um, that that they are able to look at it and say, okay, I can't expect him to say he loves me. It's what I want to hear from him. It's what I need to hear from him. But right now, it's not what I'm going to get to hear from him. And so I think when we learn to change our expectations maybe a little bit, mm -hmm. um, is it right that he doesn't say that to her? That's not really the issue, mm -hmm. in my opinion. It's, this is where we're at. Hopefully he'll be willing to see how important it is to her, mm -hmm. but if he's not, then somehow she needs to be able to change her expectation and understand that he's not able to give that to me right now. So maybe a visual going back to Willard Harley Jr., his needs, her needs, he talks about it from the, the idea of change of a male, it could be a female, thinking of his wife as the coach. Maybe he's a player coach, but she's the coach, and that he would learn from his wife. Uh, sometimes I, I believe males may be challenged more at what you're saying than females, because they're, they're, they're willing to exchange a lot of emotion and ideas more so than, than males. Um, so I'm wondering if kind of a visual would be for a male to think of himself in, in, in a learning, learning position, which I think is difficult when we want to take charge and help to nurture our families and care for them and bring the bacon home, even though women do this as well. We know that. Um, so that visual, would that help in that process? And I think absolutely. And I, I think the example that I gave was when I, when someone is just saying, I am not willing to do this. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, I'm not going to. Mm -hmm. But absolutely, that's part of our responsibility mm -hmm. as a mate in this marriage to, um, to help, mm -hmm. to model it, to, um, to be able to like you said, use that, I mean, to have that idea that this is what 
I need from you. Mm -hmm. And slowly over time to be able to show them, to model that to them, and to help them be able to come to that. So in a counseling session, absolutely, as a coach, to be able to help express that to them. So for it not to move to this for that, which is a killer in any relationship, I do this, you do that, we just become this mechanical business partner, if you will, we lose all of the intimacy, that one way to do that is to integrate continual conversation about how did that impact you? What was that like at My Therapist Says when Welch said, you know, this statement about a male or a female or, or this, and you, you may have had a reaction or a response. To talk about that and then to be able to say, this is what I may need. Is this possible? So use invitational language. Um, this ties into another question that talks about how to communicate change, which I think really feeds into what we're talking about here. The person asked, how do you communicate change? For example, lifestyle change, helping the spouse follow God and always pointing best foot forward for the children. In other words, how would you communicate change in your partner? I believe is what this question, if I'm reading it correctly, is asking. How to communicate change, like lifestyle change, or helping the spouse follow God and always pointing the best foot forward for the children. How would it be best communicated? So kind of best techniques, back to the, the very focus of why we're here tonight. What would you say? Someone comes in and says, how can I change my mate? <laughs> how can I make them better? That usually it represents an ongoing conversation. And this, the question, you know, that deals with children. How are we going, uh, when ch the children are born, what are we, how are we going to respond? What are going to be the, the boundaries? What are the limits? And that has to be revisited constantly as the children grow up. Uh, and they certainly represent a lifestyle change. I know for, uh, I've worked with several couples lately that children going off to college and the empty nest syndrome. And for them to sit down and say, okay, what does our life look like now with no kids? And again, it's an ongoing conversation. It's not like, okay, we settled it in one, one time, but to realize that we do need to revisit this and, and work through this together. And that to me is the key, is that we agree together that we're going to face those challenges and those lifestyle changes together. I wonder if that's why God made us that we have to have nutrition throughout the day. Since we've arrived in this building, we've had to breathe quite a few times um, to kind of refresh ourselves. So in many ways, it would make sense that we would need to ongoingly communicate because everyone is moving into a different season. The last time we met here, my therapist says, if you were here last month, you're in a very different position with a lot of your relationships, with your life perhaps, where things are going. So it's maybe revisiting and building in that repertoire, that conversation on an ongoing basis. I think it, it kind of ties in with the very last thing on there, which is practicing and, and not keeping it surface, but really getting to some of the deep the deeper rooter, a rooter, the deeper um, roots and asking some of those, those tough questions, you know, how are we going to go through this next phase of our life? It might be an illness. I mean, it could be a lot of different things. And it's not just about how the weather was and it's been really hot out, but wow, how are you feeling? How are you feeling about 
the diagnosis from the doctor. What's going on with you with that? Because a lot of times people don't want it, they don't want to talk at that level. It's hard, it's hard. And so it's important that we're willing to go there and to, um, to just open up and share. And I think sometimes too, if the woman is the one that is typically the one that talks more and is more emotional and willing to go there, um, slow, take it slow. But I also think that it's important that not one spouse or the other thinks they are the one that is leading the other one to the light. <laughs> because I think that is nothing but demeaning. And so how can you, as, as Dennis said, come about it as a team? We're a team moving in this direction. It's not me leading you because I'm the mm -hmm. better spouse. Yes. We're a team. Yeah, you think about the team. When you look at an infant, you first look to see if they're curious. If an infant is not curious, you get concerned. When you're hiring an employee, you look for someone who is curious and likes to learn. Because the learner is the one who tends to build relationship rather than tear down relationship. They go to the entitlement if they're not learning. And one of the fastest growing educational groups in America today are those 65 years of age and older with some level of discretionary time. And the most healthy are the ones who tend to want to learn. And so to be a learner means that I'm curious what you're saying, Kathy, that I'm curious what happened to you. I, I'm genuinely curious about that. If you stay with that thought for just a moment, a person who loses curiosity becomes very critical. Because now they're not trying to look for what they can learn. They want to tell you what they've learned, they believe, and they're going to force it or could force it on you. I often say this to my university students, and I have for now a quarter of a century. What's it going to feel like when you graduate and walk across the platform? I'm done, prof. No more books. I'm done reading. It's over. I'm, my life is now going to be heaven. And I said, you just died. I said, I hope that you would learn to be a lifelong learner. And so healthy relationship means that we're really curious. God bless you. And uh, well, we've run out of time this evening. And would you join me in, in thanking our illustrious panel for their presentation and contribution? They teased me a little when I said illustrious. I really meant that. I have high respect for every person, really high respect for every person on this platform. And I genuinely appreciate each of you joining us. May I just mention the next, the next My Therapist Says... You, you probably can see that, is self-soothing versus self-medicating. And we have uh, Aaron Cragen, who will be presenting, Dr. Ben Lim, uh, who has been with us before. He's a professor at Bethel Seminary, and Rachel Yeeman, who will be with us. Let me just say a little piece about this. Uh, I selected this title, and here's why. In life, you either self-soothe healthily, that I'll exercise, walk, sleep well, nutrition well, or I will self-medicate, overeat, not sleep as much or sleep too much. And what tends to happen is learning this skill early on in life. Some people move into self-medicating very early in life and they get stuck at that age development and then struggle the rest of their lives. If you have anyone in your life that you have seen or know of who tends to self-medicate versus self-soothing, 
When I find myself depressed, I turn to the scriptures, actually Psalms, and that's self-soothing to me. Now, the Bible says that it would be. Self-medicating would be sitting down. I, my temptation is to sit down and just watch TV for the entire evening. And by the evening's over, I feel worse than when I started, depending on what I was watching. And I was probably clicking and going through and watching different things. And the point is, this is such a big topic. And so it, it's simple, yet it could be powerful for some of your friends. So I hope that you will invite uh, your friends to come. Self-soothing versus uh, self-medicating. Let's have a word of prayer. And then we will conclude for this evening. Father, thank you so much for the truths that have been shared uh, this evening. Without a doubt, we know that all truth comes from the living God, you. And you want to reveal it to us. Your heart is bent that way. Your heart is open that way. Your heart poured out your love for us to enjoy it that way. So we pray, Father, that as we have thought tonight and thought about these concepts and talked about them and others listening in and the questions being asked from the audience, we pray that your healing touch would have met our needs. And we know you promised that it will. May we be open to hear from you even as we leave tonight and do self-reflection. One of the greatest gifts of a human being is self-reflecting. Animals don't do that. Humans do. It's the great gift you gave to us. So it's a privilege. We thank you for each person. Bless us now as we go, and we thank you for this opportunity to meet and discuss these very pertinent and powerful and important questions and thoughts. And we'll give you praise for your healing touch on each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I hope it's a great evening for you.